What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to the Cutting Room, the official podcast of FilmmakerU.com, and each week we bring you an interview with a film professional to explore the craft of filmmaking. And of course, this week is no different. I'm going to be interviewing Benji Bakshi, who's the cinematographer for the new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds. Now, Benji and I sit down to discuss the strange new world of virtual production, as well as dealing with lighting, an iconic series. If you like this interview, be sure to check out FilmicReview.com for all our courses, where we bring in the industry best to discuss their work and the craft of filmmaking. You can get 10% off at FilmicReview.com using the promo code THECUTTINGROOM. All one word, the cutting room. Now, with all that said, let's hear what Benji has to say about Star Trek Strange New Worlds. I guess my first question is, you you joined Star Trek in season two. So how did you get involved with the show? Like, how did you get brought on? Well, I had began watching um, reruns of Star Trek Next Generation basically early on in my childhood. Mm-hmm. So I was always familiar with trek and uh found that it had a really deep philosophy that stayed with me you know i was watching these reruns so compared to contemporary shows at the time i felt like i was seeing things that were a little bit dated in their style Mm -hmm. but the logic and the um the philosophy and the storytelling really stuck with me and it sort of became a very quintessential uh, sci-fi go-to for me so i was really familiar with the franchise and um, it was through my uh, agent, Tara Cromer, who uh, has done really great networking for me and brought in a lot of interesting opportunities. Um, I heard of this show, Strange New Worlds, and because season one hadn't aired yet, at first I saw it and immediately thought, is this Star Trek Discovery? And um, it said Strange New Worlds. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is another show. Uh, what's this? So um, I got access to uh, read a script and see some of the early season one uh, footage, which basically was a lot of the live action with almost no visual effects, which was interesting. But I saw a very different show compared to some of the earlier or some of the um, more contemporary Discovery and Picard and things like that, which are serialized and a little bit more darker and dramatic. So this had a lot more humor and was upbeat and it was episode of the week. And I thought this reminds me of next generation or some of the older Mm -hmm. shows I used to watch. Skip forward to um, I'm having a meeting with uh, Chris Fisher, who's the producing director and also Glenn Keenan, who was a cinematographer on discovery and did the pilot for strange new worlds and a lot of season one and was continuing on into season two. So they had the, um, the workflow and had learned a lot of lessons season one and they're looking for somebody to collaborate with season two. So, um, you know, we just got to talking and I have a background in music and also science. Um, I dabbled in wanting to be a physicist at one point and decided that I really liked telling stories about science more than actually doing the science. So this became a really great fit for me. And, um, we just hit it off. Now, I do have to ask, because when I was doing research on this and the bio that was sent over, you guys used AI 
in prepping for this or how did how did they get involved or how did you um, utilize it? The topic of AI, I mean, the show doesn't utilize AI in any official way. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, it's available for really anybody to use, especially like the imaging and things like that. I utilize AI from a sort of inspiration standpoint and mm -hmm. was able to, you know, we have concept artists and we have a whole art department that using their minds to create the worlds and and base it on the script and that takes a lot of sensitivity so that's being done by people and my opinion is those things will never go away but we have these new visualizing tools that can approximate or like i said inspire and um, lead you down a path to get a better feel for what the you know something conceptual might be so since we build all these worlds months in advance, yeah, start to build the months in advance of production, these strange new worlds that we use on the volume or the AR wall, um, it's difficult for me as a cinematographer to get a sense of, if I'm looking at a 3D render or a concept art, what's a person going to look like in there? And mm -hmm. what kind of mood or tone should we create? Because we have the choice of what kind of time of day it will be or what the overall mood or lighting should be from the world, whether it's an interior or an exterior or something in space. So I get a chance to using AI kind of like try to put a person in an environment and see the lighting feedback. And to me, it's almost like, um, you know, doing a, a camera test, if you will. But this, these are rough and they, they, inspire me to the point of being able to give feedback and inform the discussion that we're already having mm -hmm. about maybe which direction we should go. So instead of guessing, it gives me a chance to uh, really feel more secure about what feels right. Well, it's interesting because it makes me think like a lot of cinematographers I talk to will have lookbooks or have, you know, a collection of images. And now it's just an extra tool. It is. Yeah. And, and we're always pulling from inspiration of the past, too. Um, I don't think you can really get around, you know, storytelling is a very um, forward moving process, both for creators and the audience. Mm -hmm. But this is just a new tool for imagining, you know. Each episode in Star Trek feels very much like uh, its own short film. Was that intended? How did you and your the DP team sort of figure out to approach this in the series? That was one of the things that excited me about the show. As I as I was um, considering working on it, um, I love the idea of having distinct stories as much as possible. And I came from feature filmmaking, so um, I this is you know not my first television show, but it is unique in the sense that the episodes stand alone. You, mm -hmm. you don't really have to watch them in sequence. So that was very refreshing to have the episode of the week five. Of course, if you watch in series in in sequence you can follow this the characters arcs and interpersonal relationships and things like that um but to me it's the whole beauty of this series is we get to sort of start from scratch there's certain parts of the mm -hmm. ship that may generally look the same based on a you know peacetime uh story but that's not always the case. Sometimes there's a red alert or there's a power problem in the ship or yeah. something's going awry or they're in different places. 
So we really try to imagine them with a blank slate and let the script tell us what to do. And we're encouraged to uh, let the ship be, as we call it, the mood board of the episode as much as possible. Yeah. And you guys don't, just to make sure, when, when they do get attacked, you don't shake the camera like they used to and have yeah, everyone go like this? Sometimes we do. Oh, yeah? We we either do that manually or yeah. we have, you know, remote-controlled camera heads that oh, can program to, like, do stuff. Wow. Um, sometimes they will do it in visual effects, yeah. but um, sometimes we don't. Now, you, you guys shoot on the volume here in Toronto. Because you have this history of working on sets and working on locations like how has the volume changed your approach to cinematography for you personally we can freeze time at the perfect time of day (laughs) (laughs) um there's a good example of that in episode four of season two Mm -hmm. they go to this snow world rigel seven which was actually established in the very first episode of star trek ever in the pilot which then became uh two episodes that were aired we're doing a we plan to do a mix of the ar wall for some of the scenes and then go to a physical location to do a scene where they're basically working in a lumber yard yeah and it became tricky for us to try to manage that location we were concerned about the amount of daylight we would have uh some of the weather elements and also because we established Rigel 7 as having this very um, unusual sky that we were concerned about every time we see the sky which you kind of want to see um, it would be a visual effects shot and would it look right and are we sort of you know shooting ourselves in the foot Mm -hmm. so we uh, re-evaluated if we could put that set also on the AR wall and it turns out that because there's a there's a amount of work that has to be done to get a set complete and rendered in high resolution in time. Mm-hmm. And the team said that we could just squeeze it in. Um, and we were able to pull that off. So that set also got filmed on the AR wall and it was really beneficial for us. There was a fight scene during that, you know, just you're out there um, shooting, but it's temperature controlled and you're not <laughs> a bunch of snow equipment getting stuck and yeah. the whole thing. So from a production standpoint, you're shooting on a stage, but it really doesn't feel like a stage when you step out onto these floors that are created with actual material and you're surrounded immersively with these worlds that are moving and they track the camera's position. So as you're moving, Things are moving in 3D parallax. It's not just yeah. a solid matte painting. Um, it really feels so immersive and it helps the actors feel like they're really there. And uh, it looks really great on camera. So beyond the actual background that you can photograph in camera, which is a really um, beneficial thing for a cinematographer instead of shooting green screen, um, because you're getting the force feedback and you're able to use things like like a handheld camera or really shallow depth of field or uh, fog or elements in f- between the lens and the background, which helps sell the effect. There are things that we're used to using photographically, but with green screen, you are not able to do that. So we're putting things back in front of the camera. But beyond that, you can actually use the wall to impose lighting 
on your scene by putting digital shapes on the screen and uh, either maxing out the brightness or choosing what brightness you want, changing the color. And it's almost like you're creating a little Photoshop uh, shape or pattern, mm -hmm. and that can be an illuminating source. So if something's off camera, you could create a gigantic soft source if that's what you wanted. And it really helps light the scene in conjunction with still putting lights on stands because there's just a reality to things closer to the camera. You want a different lighting ratio and you can't really get around the fact that you need something physically closer sometimes. But it's a really amazing um, tool. Yeah. We have a full ceiling that helps with reflections and we can create uh, lighting effects in the ceiling itself for different areas. It also helps with what's called the blend, which is the line between the physical set and the digital wall world. Mm -hmm. And you want to make that area um, match in terms of lighting, color, and tone, what you see on the wall versus what the camera sees physically. But it's interesting because one of my questions is like, how do you deal with the blend? But <laughs> um, we have an entire we have an entire day that's dedicated yeah. for the blend. It's almost like a pre-light day, yeah. which is it's partially pre-light, but a lot of it is focused on let's blend these two sets together. And sometimes there's a discrepancy like, well, the physical set won't look a certain way. So now you've got to change in the digital set or vice versa and decide where the balance is. What Like one of the things that I found is that I think it's like Mandalorian, Star Trek, and there's a few other shows are sort of held up as like, this is well done volume work. And then there's others where people have made mistakes and it doesn't feel as realistic or doesn't feel as uh, authentic. Like, was there tricks or like little things that you guys figured out to make it feel so authentic? Because we have a lot of young cinematographers who watch these. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I want to really congratulate Chris Fisher, the producing director on the show, and also the showrunners, Akiva Goldsman and Henry Alonzo Myers. This is their brainchild, and they have gone as far as wanting to write scripts that are conducive for the wall, which I, I believe is a common mm -hmm. thing, but they really are owning that and, and making the full creative team part of the process to give feedback to make sure that the wor worlds are going to get pulled off. And also the production designer, Jonathan Lee, and his team are really excellent at being able to work with these parameters. And that's really what it is, is every time you're using the film medium, you run up against a, a constraint or a limitation, and you sort of have to spin those into um, a creative solution. So, you know, you have a limited space and the wall only works a certain way. And uh, one of the interesting things about the wall is you can't generally shoot two cameras side by side, which is usually how you utilize two cameras or even three, because they have a field of view, which is imposed digitally on the wall. And you have to shoot in a either a perpendicular pattern or an opposing pattern so that those fields of view don't conflict. So all of a sudden you're turning your normal uh routine upside down to deal with the technology or you only shoot one camera which is mostly what we do and sometimes that ends up being a benefit like chris nolan is notorious for only using one camera so um they're planning the concepts to work uh in a way that utilizes the wall technology the best and we have what's called 
the virtual art department team, mm-hmm. which is the production designer, all the cinematographers, uh, the visual effects department, producing director, the writers come in to um, give notes and approve things as they're progressing. And um, we all get to weigh in every week as these things are being created. Uh, we also have like the unreal artists working with us as well. So it's a really big creative party. And we do this a few times a week for months on a rolling basis based on which uh, digital world is being created. And we get to watch them come to fruition and everybody gets the chance to weigh in. So by the time we're shooting, there's no surprises. Everybody feels like they've given their feedback and we feel like it's creating work that's some of our best because um, we all got to, you know, weigh in. So I think that's really the secret. And if, if there's productions that aren't getting great results on the wall, it might be because that process isn't as cohesive. Well, and my, my big fear is it'll be treated like 3d was where it's just like, it's the new thing, do it. Whereas it's this new powerful tool that we can use to create worlds we've never even seen. Right. Yeah. And I think some of the really um, powerful use is in sets that you might not consider. In fact, some of these sets in Strange New Worlds, I don't even want to give them away. Um, I didn't realize when I saw season one footage, having not worked on season one, um, I didn't realize that we're done on the AR wall. I thought they were just interior sets. Mm-hmm. Oh. So it's not just a cost saving thing. It's it's really a flexibility and uh, a great filmmaking tool. So, so far it's, it's opening up possibilities and hopefully can just keep going further. In another interview, you said that when you first got on to Star Trek, you had a bit of anxiety. And I know a lot of young people getting their start, once you get into those bigger and bigger projects, you know, anxiety is going to work up. So I'm wondering how you tackled that and, you know, took on this big project. Sure. The anxiety I referenced was having too many options (laughs) because not only, I mean, the AR wall, actually, I felt right at home. I loved it. Yeah. And it's yeah. some of my favorite shoot days on set ever. But the actual standing sets, physical sets, there's lighting embedded into almost every surface. Yeah. Tables, um, you know, these architectural elements, we, which we call ribs, which kind of line the mm-hmm. sets. You know, panels, ceilings, floors, doorways, the whole thing. And that was new for me in terms of just having so many options to work with instead of this is a big window, let's push light through it and it can bounce off here because everything is imagined. And if you're building a ship, why not put light in the perfect place? Yeah. I don't know if it totally makes sense uh, that if you were sitting around a conference table, that light would be shooting into your face. (laughs) Yeah. But for photographic reasons, why not? You know? Yeah. Um, so that was the um, the challenge I had was um, I love having really definitive sources and sources on camera that feel directional. And my concern was, gosh, I don't want this to feel like there's light everywhere, yeah. which th- it is. There is light everywhere. So how do you then carve out shape with that lighting? So that took me some getting used to having to sort of like, well, turn this on, turn that off. So I would arrive to set early every day and be there with uh the gaffer and you know the lighting team and trying to 
find my own way to shoot these episodes from scratch instead mm -hmm. of recalling a look that we'd already done because immediately that to me sort of takes the creative process out of it and we don't want to be in some ways like cheapening the effect by regurgitating an existing look yeah. you want to really be shooting every scene custom and sometimes we go really dark and sometimes we don't so in terms of how can you overcome that i think it's really just falling back to your core and relying on your instinct and believing in that that yeah. you know how you think it should look if you need more time to physically experiment try to take as much of that as you can and um, look at references or practice in ways that are um inexpensive whether that's you know using like i reference ai tools just to sort of like understand why you might like something mm -hmm. um and of course looking at existing references and also you could just like take lego figures or something and play with small little sources and see what those things do and you can like take a picture on your phone especially yeah. if you're like on a telephoto or um you know macro kind of scale so there's a lot of ways you can like get used to what something will look like in advance instead of having a crew move heavy equipment slowly and you're like oh gosh it's not there yet why isn't this working I think the other thing that might have given you so much light is all the white <laughs> walls because there's a lot of sets that are white and they're white green. yes you're absolutely right and it's difficult to create shape on those yeah. it's all um a sense of what you want the story to do and i've learned to get used to each set and what they offer and sometimes we can really make the walls fall off if we need to but sometimes mm -hmm. we don't have to it's a matter of you know the the costumes have a lot of color so we're using color separation instead of like yeah. limited separation now i have one last question for you what would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or tv show to watch contact oh yeah film what is it about that show? um yeah and really almost anything by zemeckis i think if it's on you just kind of like sink in because the storytelling is so good also for example a pandemic guilty pleasure was i watched the entire series of friends and seinfeld because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i don't want to think so much about something dramatic or even yeah. crafted uh, as a single camera show, like I just kind of want to sink into pure, you know, fast paced comedy, situational stuff. So those are probably my guilty pleasures. I had heard with Seinfeld that they were having trouble around 2007 and like 2012 getting young people to watch it because all the, a lot of the situations could be solved with a phone. You could just call your friend, like if they're late for the movie or they're or sorry, they're stuck at the restaurant, they would start searching their phones to find a better restaurant or get tickets so they're not late, that type of thing. Absolutely. Um, I have a four-year-old son, and you know, every time somebody does does this, what, oh, this is a phone. I was like, what that's not a phone. The phone is the square thing that you play games on. <laughs> yeah. Today my daughter got in the car with me and we I gave her um we have these games for road trips, and she just happened to have it with her. And she's like, what is this? And she pointed at it. I'm like, that's a phone booth. <laughs> she's like, what? I was yeah, like, I, was I was just at the Hollywood Bowl, by the way, watching 2001 with a live orchestra. Oh, wow. 
which was incredible. And they have booths near the restroom and that they've converted into charging booths. Oh, smart. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you today. You too. This was fun. So that was my interview with Benji. I'd like to thank Benji for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Evan Winch for cutting this episode and my producer, Jason Banky. I'm Gordon Raquel. Thanks for listening.